Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room podcast. When we think of thefts in the workplace, the first image that probably springs to mind is someone with their hand in the till. However, theft in the workplace takes many forms, and the real question is, when it does happen, what do we do? So to guide us through this topic today, we're delighted to be joined by Marianne Galvin, Head of Workplace Investigations here at Inside HR. And as always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, Founder and Managing Director here at Inside HR. How are you, Mary? I'm great, thanks, Owen. Lovely to have you with us, Mary. And you've been here in the organisation for a while, but this is your pod- first podcast with us. Yes, I'm excited to be partaking. That's it. Finally got you. So look, we'll kick off. Uh, Mary, I'll come to yourself first. So I suppose when theft in the workplace does happen, uh, what are the first steps when an alleged theft is discovered? The first thing is not to jump to conclusions, because even if you find an employee with their hand in the till, as a simple example, that does not mean you can automatically dismiss that person um, just because you're certain that they have done something. So when it comes to theft in the workplace, you have to remember that you've got to have evidence. You've got to um, gather your facts and have them established to some extent before you even approach the employee in the first place to raise it as a potential disciplinary issue, which usually involves a workplace investigation. So typically when um, you have a concern about theft in any form, and as you rightly say, it can be from the really obvious, you see somebody um, removing money from a petty cash box from a till, uh, you become aware that something fraudulent is happening in terms of your books uh, and the, the way in which things are being accounted for. You might see something like orders that aren't needed for the business going out or, or being ordered. You might see people taking stock. There can be so many ways in which an individual can steal from the organization. The first step usually is to suspend someone um, while you investigate and gather your facts and build your case. Um, And the next step is usually to carry out a workplace investigation. And the final step is to discipline someone. So, Mary, is there certain policies that employers tend to, to lean on when this kind of thing happens? I'd imagine it's quite explicitly included in most policies and procedures, is it? 
in most in most policies and procedures when it comes to your discipline policy you're going to have a section of that policy which is dedicated to gross misconduct and usually within um, that particular section of the discipline policy you're going to find um, a statement which goes something like irrespective of the amount or value uh, theft is considered to be gross misconduct but there's quite a distance for an employer to go to prove that somebody has stolen something from the workplace whether that's tools equipment uh, money um, stock there's quite a distance for the organization to go and you know we often see um, employers certain that somebody has done something wrong um, but they have presumed them guilty before giving them a chance to uh, defend their name, defend their reputation, explain what has happened. Absolutely. So on the slightly more criminal side of things, Marion, then when must the company involve on Garda Giacona in this kind of process? Well, on any person or company our companies are under a mandatory obligation to report um, any suspected criminal activity to Angarda Siakana that they know or believe might be of material assistance to them. And this is so that they can prevent the commission of the crime by a person of a relevant offence. So as we're talking today about thefts and fraud um, or the securing the apprehension, prosecution or conviction of a person um, for whatever reasons. And then on a third point, which isn't a regular occurrence, but auditors have responsibilities under the Companies Act 2014 and the Irish Collective Asset Management Vehicles Act 2015, that they must report possible non-compliance with those acts to the Director of Corporate um, Enforcement, who have to report to the DPP, which is the Director of Public Prosecutions, who will report it to Angarda Siakana. Um, but we also have to bear in mind that the time that reported to on Garda is at the right time um, not to be contrived, but it makes more sense to conduct a workplace investigation and the company can decide at the time that they reported to on Garda However, if there's a further risk that further loss uh, to any person or to the company, um, it must be reported immediately to on Garda this may delay the investigation, uh, but the criminal system supersedes. Um, and as Mary has um, discussed earlier, the suspension of an employee um, on, on this point. Again, I, I would suggest that you discuss it. Uh, if you're doing a workplace investigation, you discuss it with us if you have concerns about when you should report to Angarda Siakana. Definitely. I suppose, Mary, then is there a typical process for dealing with something like this? I know Marion kind of alluded to it there, but is there a kind of a set typical process for theft in the workplace? Yeah, there is. Uh, I mean, on Marion's point about uh, going to the uh, Garda, Gardaí, um, I think it's really important that, you know, you get advice on that because you have, as Marion rightly outlined, a duty and obligation to report a theft. So say, for instance, if you don't report a theft and you don't suspend the individual and they go on to steal money from 
another individual or more money from the organization well then what is your position so when it comes to theft what I would say first and foremost is a cool head and calmness you cannot accuse people in the wrong it is a really really serious matter to accuse someone of stealing so the first step normally is to suspend pending an investigation so during you during which you will gather your evidence gather your facts review all documentation cctv footage interview witnesses establish your facts and put it together in the form of a report and a pretty robust report there is um you know when it comes to employment law and you know carrying out a workplace investigation you don't need to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that somebody has stolen from the organization you can do so on the balance of probabilities but I would always be cautious myself about, you know, going on the balance of probabilities when it comes to theft, because if we make um, an assertion um, and an allegation against an individual, I prefer to operate on solid ground when it comes to theft so that you know it's the fairest thing to the individual. But the reality is you could on on the balance of probabilities draw conclusions um from certain facts once you're viewing them together uh versus in uh, a criminal setting where it must be beyond reasonable doubt and and marion with all her years in the guardie um probably can answer that point better than i can yeah i suppose the perfect segue actually into my next question marion when it does come to the courts how do the courts handle this kind of process? And what is that kind of difference between reasonable probability, reasonable doubt, that kind of stuff? Okay. There is one other point that I just want to follow up on mm. what Mary was saying, and it, it's a relatively new um, legislation before I go into explaining the um, the theft, the Criminal Theft and Fraud Offences Act 2001, um, that's relevant to companies. Um, there's under the Criminal Justice Theft and Fraud Amendment Offences Act 2021, there's now a liability for offences by a body corporate and it's the body corporate's defence against which proceedings are attributable to the failure by, say, a director, a manager, a secretary, an employee, a subsidiary or an agent or any other um, office of the body corporate. And it's up to the company to show that they exercise all due diligence to avoid the commission of this offence, which Mary have, has discussed earlier in, 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 in doing a proper investigation, a robust investigation. So it, it all intertwines in, in your responsibilities on, under that act as well, which leads me on to yeah, how, how theft is, is in the workplace is handled through the court system. So just firstly, make, let me explain um, just as brief as I can. Firstly, the theft under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Theft and Fraud Offences Act 2001. It's quite a mouthful, so we'll call it the Act from now on. Um, so theft is the dishonest appropriation of property without the consent of its owner and with the intention of depriving its owner of it. So an example of that would be taking home office equipment without approval, for example, toilet roll, coffee, 
you'd be surprised what people do not think is theft. Um, selling copper or equipment for your own gain without the company's consent could be another example. I mean, the list goes on. I think Mary alluded to it earlier on your cell phone. Um, what what we what we what some people consider <laughs> is theft and what's not. Um, and there are numerous exceptions to theft. Um, so acting in good faith or believing that they, they have the owner's consent, we have to be mindful of that. And then consent obtained by deception or intimidation is not consent and is therefore theft. However, the exceptions to theft under section five of this act, if for example, acting in good faith. So where property or a right of property or interest in property is or purports to be transferred for value, to a person acting in good faith, which that person believes himself or herself to be acquiring shall by reason of any defect in the transfer's title amount to theft of the property. Now that sounds like quite a mouthful um, in it, but let me just say, say for example, you bought a van on a website and you took it in good faith that it was legitimate, but later you find it as a company car or it was stolen. This is not your property. And while you may have been able to prove you did not know it was stolen, you are at the loss of the cash you gave for it. So this is an exception because you are not a party to the theft itself, but you are out of pocket. So be careful when, when uh, purchasing things um, in likes of that. I suppose if you're, if you're buying, say, a van for work or something, that you are careful you do due diligence on that point. And also there's another part to this act and that's section six that can become part of, of the workplace. And that is making gain or causing loss by deception. So this is where a person dishonestly with the intention of making gain for themselves or another or a, of causing loss to another by any deception induces another to do or refrain from doing an act is guilty of an offence. So an example of this in the workplace may be that you might ask someone to leave the supplies door unlocked and you take home a printer or simply some paper. You are then including another person in your deception. And this could lead both of you to be investigated internally or externally. So I hope I've explained um, the three parts of the section of the, the act in a simplified form that is understandable from a workplace. We, we consider ourselves very lucky to have you, Marion, with this kind of criminal knowledge that the rest of us don't when it comes to workplace investigations. You know, we, I find that it's one of those areas for employers and one of those areas when it comes to HR practitioners that there really is, a, a you know, an awful lot of confusion about well, what can we do? You know, some of the mistakes I see employers make, even in terms of the approach that they take, is that they never actually use the words uh theft that they kind of skirt all around the issue not quite saying what the allegations are I've seen it described as a matter of concern rather than you know an alleged misappropriation of funding or an alleged um in you know taking of something you know the, the the language that people use around this whole thing can be very very vague and that's problematic you know 
when it comes to later taking dis- disciplinary action against a person. Seems to be clear about, well, what exactly are you accusing someone of? You know, what's the scope of any investigation you're going to do? Sometimes we have clients come to us and, you know, it could be a construction site where, um, you know, offcuts are stolen or equipment is stolen or um, time is stolen even uh, from the employer. And, you know, an employer being full sure that they can immediately haul someone into a meeting and dismiss them um, when actually that's not the case. And there's some industries where you'll see more theft than others. Um, you know, certainly your retail, your hospitality, your construction, um, you know, you might see low level theft going on there. So you might see employees taking um, stock or alcohol, or giving food to their friends uh, freely, or alcohol, or, or, you know, something like that. But I have been involved in cases where toilet roll was stolen from uh, corporate offices. And while you might think, well, look, if an employee needs a toilet roll to bring home for whatever reason, we're not going to pursue that rigorously through our disciplinary procedure. We're certainly not going to hold an investigation. But the quantities this particular person was taking was quite significant um, and clearly taking it for resale um, and at the same time uh, reordering. And so the the innocuous um item such as toilet roll where most organizations aren't going to question what's happening to it because what way do you have of measuring its use in an organization um, can mean that something like that can very very easily slip under the radar and it takes a bit of forensic accounting for somebody to say hold on here uh, last year we spent x amount on on toilet roll with this number of staff present. And this year we're spending X amount on toilet roll without any huge growth in our staff numbers. What's happening here? Um, And that's often how theft comes to light where somebody either sees something uh, or comes across something in terms of finance um, or becomes aware of some kind of shifty or shady behavior that's going on from an employee. Um, But it is an area that is fraught with difficulty and that employers really do need to be very careful about. Yeah, I think that proportionality element is quite actually interesting when we talk about this kind of thing. I think, Marianne, on the kind of criminal side of things, there is a lot of guidance around that kind of proportionality to fit the crime kind of thing, isn't there? Yeah, there is. There's three main elements that are required for a crime to occur. I'm going to keep this very short and to the point. First one is there's an act, the act or the conduct. So that's called actus reus. The second main element is the individual's mental state at the time of the act, menace reus. You could have heard this in the news relating to murder cases, for example. Um, the third is the causation between the act and the effect. So that's typically either proximate causation or but for cause. Okay. Um, that's the proportionality 
um, elements of it, um, which I don't think we're going to go into any further today on, yeah. on that. <laughs> Definitely. And I think even then, I suppose on the employer side of things, Mary, is there proportionality then around, let's say that kind of, I don't know, I'm in the supply cupboard and I take a few notepads worth five euro or I take a printer worth two and a half grand. Is there a proportionality element on that side of things? Is it around that gross misconduct? Is that the kind of trigger there to, to decide things? You know, in in most cases, once any theft has occurred in the workplace, um, the trust and confidence is gone. So, you know, if somebody brings home a pen uh, from their workplace or a couple of notepads and they bring them home, you know, that's one thing. Uh, if they shouldn't do that, that, you know, and if it's clear from an organisational policy perspective that they shouldn't do that, that's one thing. Stealing a printer is probably quite another and it goes back to I guess you know what was the purpose in the first place so you always have to be fair and reasonable in deciding if um, there's a sanction to be applied following an investigation following a disciplinary hearing so if you're deciding that somebody has stolen something from the organization most employers aren't going to say but it was only this so if somebody stole five euro versus someone stealing fifty thousand euro uh, will the employer move to dismiss um, and will the dismissal ultimately be considered fair in a third party setting? A lot will depend on the policies and procedures. A lot will depend on um, the state of mind of the individual and, and the purpose uh, of that theft and how long it was going on for. Um, and it will come back to that whole central theme of trust and confidence. Um, has the action of the employee um, in effect damaged that necessary relationship of trust and confidence between the employer and the employee? And if it has, if that damage is irreparable, um, the organisation will usually dismiss the employee. But of course, you've got to have uh, an appeal process in place so that the employee can actually appeal. So sometimes when we look at those uh, appeals, we, we may not have any involvement uh, in an allegation of theft or fraud until it comes to the point of appeal because the organisation may have handled it internally themselves up until that point in time. And sometimes we're brought in to hear the appeal. And when we do hear the appeal, sometimes we see that fundamental mistakes have been made uh, around the handling and the treatment of evidence. You know, you'll be looking for two things. One, you're going to look at the procedures that the organization applied. Were they fair? Did the person know the case against them? Did the person have the right to defend themselves? Did the person uh, get a copy of all evidence uh, from the organization in relation to the alleged fraud or theft? Um, and were they represented and given a fair hearing? Um, they're just fundamental rights. So we would look at the procedures, you know, were the procedures fair in the first instance? If the procedures weren't fair um, and somebody wasn't provided with those fundamental rights, um, 
then irrespective of what they may or may not have done, uh, you may be considering the entire process unfair. Um, and the other thing we would always look at is the substantive issue. Did the employee actually do what it was that they were accused of doing? Is there evidence to support that decision? Um, and if both of those things are right, uh, we will be in a position to uphold an appeal. If those things, if one of those things isn't right, um, then we may not be in a position, we, we may overturn the appeal or um, consider a lesser sanction than dismissal. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Marion, about getting the timing right so that you have everything in place for when it does hit the courts and stuff as well. So I suppose my only other question on the kind of court side of things, Marion, is I think there was, we kind of briefly mentioned earlier that distinction between district court, circuit court. Is there any kind of guidance around that? Whereas below a certain amount, it goes to district above a certain thing goes to circuit. Is there any guidance on that? Yes, there's there's three there's three parts. Before I talk about the court the court system, um, in on the first of February two thousand and six, the DPP uh, approved the adult cautioning scheme. So this incorporates section four of the theft the theft part of the act, which we are discussing today. That's where the value is concerned is less than a thousand euros. So the scheme applies to anyone over eighteen. And it is an alternative to the prosecution of certain schedules, criminal offences deemed suitable and is not required in the public interest. The idea behind this is, is to cut back in court time, pu public monies being spent. So um, if the person, um, there must be a prima facie case of evidence of the offender's guilt. The offender must admit the offence the offender must understand the significance of the caution and the offender must be given an informed consent to be, to be cautioned. And they meet at a guard station at an appointed time with a, 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 a member of the Garda Shikana above at the rank of inspector or above. What it means for that person is they don't have to go to the court system. So they don't have a criminal record as such on their records, which can affect their employment. But it does mean that if it happened a second time, that that would have to be reviewed and decided by the DPP whether they'd use the adult caution scheme again or whether they would go to the courts. That would not have an effect on the employer's um, policies and procedures in relation to that. That is just the criminal aspect side of it. That's just one option uh, in relation to the criminal st structure. The second part then, as I said, if you've gone past the adult um, caution scheme is, is there's the district court and the circuit court or the two lower courts. The district courts are regularly on in, your, in a local area and the circuit courts travel. So they're less frequent. So this is sometimes why cases go on for a good number of, of months or years. So, if you have a theft of up to 500 euros, you can report it online to www.garda.ie or you can go into a Garda station. Or if it's over 500 euros, you can go into a Garda station. And what happens there is the guard that comes to the counter or calls to your premises will take a statement, collect the evidence, any arrests made and suspects will be interviewed. The investigation file will be forwarded to the DPP who will recommend a recommended cider done dist at the district level, which is summarily, 
or the circuit court, which is indictment. And what that means is it, it's called in the district, unless it's a high value, say Mary had explained earlier, if you have someone that's stolen 100,000 euros, well, that would be deemed too high for the district court. So the DPP would suggest that goes straight to indictment. And that's a judge and a jury. The district court doesn't have a jury. If it's a smaller amount of money, say we're on the money point, then it could go to district court, but it will depend whether the person's pleading guilty or not guilty. So if they plead guilty, it's dealt with at the district court. If they plead not guilty, it goes to the circuit court for judge and jury. So this all takes time um, and over the time. And this, the, the, you have to understand this, that it doesn't, they try to quicken things up with the adult caution scheme and, and that. But it does have, if you're dependent on that to progress with your workplace, it, it can have an effect on it, but it's out of your hand, as to say. Um, so in relation to, to that, as we say, in relation to that, the summary investigations must be conducted within six months of the date of reporting the crime. OK, there's some exceptions for the, for the indictment cases that can take longer. So as we explained earlier, if we think there's uh, some fraudulent activity going on in the business, this can take longer to do. And, and this may involve a bigger team of people from different departments within Ungarda Shikana to deal with that. So all these different aspects do, do, do have to be taken into consideration when you're reporting a crime. Um, now at the courts, uh, all court cases are under oath or affirmation, the same as the WRC is now. And therefore, a person who purges themselves will be liable to prosecution. So the way the, the process works, if you want me to quickly go into the court system, uh, Owen. <laughs> yeah, well, we have you, may as well, right? So the prosecution opens the case, calls and questions the witnesses, and allows them to tell their own story and give their evidence in their own words. The documents and statements may be produced. The forensic evidence um, may be also provided. That's a item, the clothing, documents, CCTV, whatever you've collected. Now, this is why we ask in workplace investigations to provide us with all the evidence as the company will have it ready if Ungarda Shikana need it in a criminal investigation. And this strengthens the case because we've collected it from the start. Then it is up to defence to cross and examine the witnesses once all the prosecution have called all their witnesses and either party can be called to re-examine again. And now another key part, uh, key difference between this, between the civil and the criminal law is the thresholds, which Mary has mentioned earlier about the balance of probabilities. So the difference is that the civil threshold is the balance of probabilities. But the criminal one is that every person is innocent until proven guilty beyond reasonable doubt. So that is physical evidence, admission, witnesses, loads of things. It's up to the prosecution to prove that a defendant is guilty beyond reasonable doubt. That's the burden of proof. That's the difference. The defense must merely show that there are circumstances where doubt can be cast on the prosecution case. So it's a much higher threshold than a workplace investigation. But as Mary has said earlier, in a theft, having the evidence or something is, is, is really, really helpful and it would, would help the case. 
if it was to go further. So uh, say, for example, in a civil law investigation, you might find the employee probably stole the cash as a distinct from the need to find that the employee had stolen the cash beyond reasonable doubt as required in a criminal case. So for an employer to come to a conclusion and fairly dismiss an employee, if appropriate, they must have utilised fair procedures throughout the investigation, as Mary has mentioned earlier, and what we would look at in appeals as well. Um, and there must, there could be a risk for unfair dismissal if they found that they acted unreasonably. So they're just things to bear in mind. And you can see the crossover between, between both. Definitely. And I think, yeah, and there's so much to think about, Marion. It's great to cover it all. And I think we're, we're seeing... A lot. I'm not sure is it just me, but we're definitely seeing a lot in the media lately about these kind of unfair dismissal cases, about things going wrong as well. So I think, Mary, for I think for HR teams, before even getting into this, is there any way that they can kind of prevent this from happening? I know it's obviously you can't fully prevent like humans or humans, things will happen. But as we always say, that kind of prevention piece is better than cure. So is there anything that HR teams, organizations can do to maybe minimize the, the occurrences? Policies and procedures is your starting point. So you, you must have robust policies and procedures that outline clearly, um, you know, what you will do in the event that you find that somebody has been uh, stealing from the organisation or has committed fraud um, or embezzled something. Um, you know, the codes of conduct can support that as well. So the more you have in written format, um, that makes it clear that the employee ought not to do such a thing or shouldn't do such a thing, uh, the better. But we always find it's where there are loose controls and people who are uh, opportunistic uh, in the workplace who spot the fact that, um, you know, the uh, alarm codes never change or that the stockroom door doesn't have a lock on it or we don't have appropriate accounting systems or, you know, employees are left largely unsupervised or we don't have CCTV cameras um, in the premises or surrounding the premises. We find that where there are loose controls in an organization that they are more likely to experience um, theft or fraud or, or something along those lines. Um, but that's not to say that that is always the case. Sometimes people are very, very crafty um, and it's quite hard to believe when you see the lengths to which people will go to steal money or to commit fraud in an organization so for example we have seen um people put partners and family members onto payroll systems um and have them there for quite some time before they get detected um we've seen people do routine things like steal wine or beer or stock or food from an organization for years before being detected and um, and you know like the toilet roll example that I give you who is really watching that 
who was really aware of what was being ordered in um, and what was being kept on the premises and why was the organization getting through it so quickly so loose controls um, is an area in which an organization can tighten up and obviously the more you have around cctv uh the better but again that can't be covert that needs to be something that the employee is aware is on the premises surrounding the premises um and that you must make sure that you have your statements in there in your handbook um and that people know what data is being collected uh, in the form of uh, video footage relating to them and how that's been stored and processed and how it might be used in the future uh, from the employment perspective. So there's a lot for organisations to consider when they're trying to reduce or eliminate um, theft in the workplace and you know for many organisations uh, in retail or in catering or hospitality or in hotels you know they do accept that there is going to be a certain percentage of money lost through uh, fraud and theft however um you know the tighter the controls the stronger the policies the quicker their response and the professionalism of how they handle workplace investigations and disciplinary processes and appeals all of that uh, serves as a deterrent definitely so lots to think about um but thankfully we 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 touched on most of it there today hopefully there's obviously things we didn't touch on but a huge uh, huge thanks to to mary and marion for for giving us all the insights they have there so really appreciate the time a uh, very interesting topic as well to talk about thank you to everyone obviously for listening as well uh, we'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast and don't forget to click subscribe join the discussion on our social media channels and do reach out if you do have any questions on this topic because we know it is quite a an intense and, and kind of a difficult one to, to wrap the head around but hopefully today has helped and um, make sure to check the show notes for useful resources related to today's topic which there will be many of and as always for hr consultancy services and management you can trust Get in touch with us today at InsightHR.ie. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.